A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Glad you've joined the program today. Coming up, we're going to take a look at a couple of ordinances that were passed in Oregon on Election Day. Second Amendment Sanctuary Ordinances, to be specific. Now, you know, we've talked for well over a year on this program about the Second Amendment Sanctuary Movement, uh, which really began in the state of Illinois back in uh, 2018, uh, spread to New Mexico uh, that same year. And then in uh, 2019, it really started getting a lot of national attention when Democrats took control of the state legislature in Virginia. Uh, And almost immediately, you saw a response from dozens of counties and towns and cities across the state uh, and tens of thousands of gun owners who showed up at their county supervisors meetings, their city council meetings, um, to push for these resolutions that would basically say, look, we're not going to enforce any unconstitutional gun control laws. In the wake of Virginia's Second Amendment sanctuary surge, uh, we also saw communities in New York State, Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, Oklahoma, a a number of states sort of carried that torch forward. And then on Election Day in Oregon, just a couple of weeks ago, four counties uh, actually had on their ballot a chance for citizens to vote to declare their counties Second Amendment sanctuaries as well. These ordinances, I got to tell you, were met with a great deal of opposition, not only from gun control groups, but from local politicians as well. I mean, you had county sheriffs arguing against these ordinances. But on Election Day, two of the four ordinances actually passed. And so as things stand right now in the state of Oregon... Um, in these two counties, uh, Columbia County and uh, what is the other county? Hang on one second. You know what? I should have had this right in front of me, but uh, Umatilla County, uh, which is in uh, eastern Oregon and then uh, Columbia County in northwest Oregon. The law as it stands right now is that if local law enforcement uh, were to try to, you know, uh, uh, enact a uh, a red flag firearm seizure petition or, or something of that nature, then they could actually be fined uh, by the by the county. There are a lot of questions about how this is going to work and and whether or not this is even legal to do so. Uh, the um, website Oregon Live. Uh, recently took a look at these new ordinances in terms of how they might work in practice. Uh, And what they found, they say uh, legal experts and even some national gun rights advocates say the resolutions are on shaky ground because they require police to ignore laws that they're sworn to uphold. Measures also appear to undermine the state's legal authority to regulate guns. Under Oregon law, the power to regulate almost all aspects of firearms rests with the legislature. Umatilla County DA Daniel Primus doesn't expect the voter approval to have much of a practical effect for his office. He will uphold the law, he said. I took an oath, and I'm going to follow that oath. The uh, Oregon Attorney General's office, meanwhile, uh, has not yet weighed in. The difference between an ordinance and a resolution uh, is that one actually carries the force of law. 
whereas uh, a, a resolution is largely symbolic. I say largely because that's not entirely the case. You know, if you've got an ordinance, again, if, if that ordinance is violated, then there are going to be consequences. Whereas a resolution more broadly directs, you know, uh, county authorities or city authorities uh, on the steps that they should take in terms of enforcement. Now, back to this Oregon Live article, uh, they quote uh, Penny Okamoto, who's the executive director of Ceasefire Oregon, the uh, gun control group there in the state, who says, quote, it just leaves a huge mess as to what county employers are supposed to be doing. Uh, but she says they're going to make themselves, meaning uh, Second Amendment advocates, they're going to make themselves and followers feel better. They're getting donations from it. It's not helping anyone. It's really opening up the counties to a lawsuit. Maybe opening up the counties to a lawsuit. In fact, I, 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 will, I will go so far as to say, yes, if these ordinances are ever enforced, it's likely that they will take or that they will face a legal challenge. But I'm not sure that um, Akimoto should just, you know, so blithely dismiss the actions taken by residents in these two counties. Uh, even if these ordinances are maybe not the best way to go about this. Um, Oregon Live also talked with a guy named Michael Bolden. He's the executive director of the 10th Amendment Center which uh, describes itself as a nonpartisan think tank that supports the principles of strictly limited constitutional government. He, too, on papers on board with the idea of Second Amendment sanctuaries, but not with the specific language adopted by voters in Columbia and Umatilla County. He says he's encouraged gun rights activists to model their ordinances after immigration sanctuary laws like the ones passed in Oregon decades ago that forbids local law enforcement from using public resources to find or detain undocumented immigrants not suspected of a crime. Uh, he says, I actually will tell you right out front, I'm fully on board with the concept. I'm with the gun rights people in concept, but I think that they've crafted these so poorly that in practice, they actually do nothing. So again, we get into the issue of enforcement, right? And some of the Second Amendment resolutions that we've seen adopted around the country, uh, in Virginia in particular, I think are actually on much stronger legal ground. Uh, even if they're not um, actual ordinances, even if they don't come with you know criminal penalties attached for violating these ordinances, if you think about, you know, Oregon's sanctuary law, for example, or San Francisco's uh, sanctuary law, um, these are not, in fact, uh, ordinances that punish the local police department if they cooperate with ICE. It basically just says, look, you're not going to spend money. You're not going to spend local resources assisting the federal government uh, in the enforcement of these laws. And I think that's a much better strategy to take. Where you're talking about not using the power of the purse strings to go and enforce these laws, as opposed to simply saying, we will not recognize these laws that are on the books. Because every law enforcement department has discretion. In fact, every individual law enforcement officer has discretion in terms of what laws they're going to enforce. If you've ever driven by a police officer and you're going 58 and a 55 and you haven't been pulled over, all right, well, that's officer discretion. Uh, if, you know, if someone is pulled over for speeding, maybe the uh, cop finds a small amount of uh, marijuana in their vehicle. Ten years ago, that would have likely led to an arrest. These days, maybe not. And in fact, in you know some states, 
the possession of marijuana is legal, even though it's illegal under federal law, which is a whole other issue here because you've got gun control groups who are saying, oh, this is crazy. This is uncalled for. They're just trying to go out and make their own laws. I, no, that's not the case. You know, we, uh, we if, if you read uh, Barry and Arms yesterday, we talked about an opinion piece at the New York Times, uh, uh, New York Attorney General Gabriel Gawal and uh, the New Jersey Solicitor General uh, had this piece on progressive federalism. Yeah, which is basically um, the idea that, OK, the federal courts might not be amenable to our socialist ideas going forward. If you got a 6-3 majority or maybe a 5-4 majority on the Supreme Court, we're not going to be able to have uh, a lot of our progressive wish list ideas upheld. Um, so what we need to do is we need to start thinking local, right? And we need to start trying to take preemptive action. If we know the Supreme Court's got to you know, weigh in on a measure, uh, we need to go ahead and take steps, pass, pass new legislation uh, that would maybe tweak the uh, the law that is... Uh, being challenged and being heard by the high court, looking again for, for for ways to do an end run around the courts. And this is not new. You know, you can go back 100 years now to the advent of prohibition in this country. And there were many so-called wet counties um, as opposed to dry counties where, you know, the sale of alcohol had been forbidden locally already. When the federal prohibition on alcohol you know, took effect, a lot of these wet counties and wet cities and even wet states said something very similar to what Second Amendment sanctuary proponents are, are arguing right now. Okay, so you've, you've passed your law. Under federal law, it's illegal for people to buy alcohol or you know, uh, drink at a bar. Guess what? If you want to enforce those laws... Have at it, but we're not going to do anything to help you because we feel like this is a waste of our time and energy and resources. And oh yeah, by the way, we disagree with the law. That type of, that's not nullification, right? That's not saying uh, we uh, simply refuse to acknowledge that your law exists. No, they acknowledge that the law exists, but they're not going to lift a finger to help enforce it. And again, the discretion that was used 100 years ago in enforcing uh, uh, you know, alcohol prohibition uh, is the same type of attitude that's being used in places like San Francisco to avoid enforcement of uh, federal immigration law. And, and I think that that is the same type of mentality that needs to come into play when we're talking about Second Amendment sanctuaries. So it's not a matter of a, a blanket prohibition on law enforcement, uh, uh, you know, uh, actually uh, arresting somebody for violating a magazine ban uh, or engaging in a, a red flag, a firearms petition. But it's simply the idea that, look, these aren't our priorities. And, and we're not going to spend time and resources enforcing these laws because we've got bigger issues in our community. And so we're going to continue to focus on those bigger issues in the community. And you know what? If the state wants to come in and the state police want to try to enforce these state-level gun laws or the uh, U.S. government wants to try to come in and enforce these federal gun laws, okay, have at it, but we're not going to do anything. and We're going to, not going to spend a dime of money in our county to enforce any of these laws. We're going to allow our officers the discretion uh, on their own 
as to whether or not they they want to enforce these laws. Um, and again, law enforcement prioritizes the laws that they're enforcing each and every day. That's just a simple fact. If someone, if an officer is, you know, on a call to a, a home invasion uh, and they pass by a car that's doing 90 miles an hour going in the opposite direction, what do they do? Most of the time, they're going to keep going to that home invasion call because that's a bigger priority than somebody who's speeding. Now, they might call it in on the radio, say, hey, I just passed somebody driving like a bat out of hell going the other way. Uh, if there are any other units available, then you can pull them over. But that individual officer has made that choice. Here's what I'm going to prioritize. And that's really what we're talking about when it comes to Second Amendment sanctuaries. Prioritizing the, the laws that are on the books and placing a very low priority on nonviolent possessory firearm offenses that, generally speaking, are aimed squarely at otherwise legal law-abiding gun owners instead of violent criminals. And, and I, I find it really difficult to imagine that uh, it would be successful to legally challenge a law enforcement agency that says it's not that we're you know, never going to enforce these laws, but we don't have any plans to. And it's certainly not going to be a priority because we're worried about opioids. We're worried about violent crime. We're worried about, uh, you know, having fewer officers on the street at a time in which violent crime is on the increase. So we're going to focus our efforts there instead of focusing on law and, uh, you know, legal law abiding gun owners. That, to me, is a solid strategy going forward, whereas the Second Amendment Sanctuary Ordinances, which, again, appear to have more teeth to them, do open up, I think, the risk of legal challenges and could ultimately be tossed out completely, uh, again, if they ever are enforced in places like Columbia County, Oregon, or Umatilla County. So I don't think the Second Amendment sanctuary movement is uh, is over by a long shot. As a matter of fact, uh, we already saw one lawmaker in Oklahoma uh, offer up legislation that would make the entire state a Second Amendment sanctuary. And if gun control advocates are able to, uh, to to start getting some of their agenda items enacted, whether it's through legislation at the federal level, uh, more likely through administrative action and through executive branch actions, I, I think you're going to see a resurgence of the Second Amendment sanctuary movement. In fact, we may already starting to be see this uh, see this bubbling up to the surface here, but I think that it would become much more widespread. Um, already around the country, there are about 500 communities that have adopted either Second Amendment Sanctuary resolutions or Second Amendment Sanctuary ordinances. That's a lot, but there is still room to grow, given that we've got 6,000 some odd counties in the United States. Most of those are rural counties or exurban counties where support for the Second Amendment is high. So the, the growth potential for the Second Amendment Sanctuary movement uh, is still very real. I, but I, it, you know, what we've seen in years past is that it is generally triggered by a specific action, right? In New Mexico, it was the uh, attempt to pass universal background checks, uh, and that ended up with I think 32 of 33 counties in New Mexico adopting Second Amendment sanctuary resolutions. In New Jersey, or excuse me, in uh, Virginia, again, it was the um, the fact that Democrats took control of the state house and the state Senate, and immediately started talking about a dozen or more different gun control laws, including uh, Ralph Northam's uh, idea to ban so-called assault weapons, magazines over 10 rounds, and uh, all lawfully owned suppressors. 
And Ralph Northam's original idea in Virginia was that existing gun owners, it was very similar to Joe Biden's uh, proposed gun ban, as a matter of fact, existing gun owners would have had to turn those items over to the state government or else become criminals. Uh, and that was, I think, the real impetus and the driving force in Virginia behind the Second Amendment Sanctuary Movement. Now, that bill failed, by the way, in Virginia. Uh, they watered it down. They tried to make it more palatable for uh, rural Democrats, but there were still four Democrat state senators who voted against the measure, uh, and that doomed it to defeat. Northam has vowed that he's going to bring this bill back, by the way. And if he does, you know, I... I don't know if we've reached the saturation point in Virginia for Second Amendment sanctuary counties, but we're awfully close because, as I said, we've got over 100. Uh, 94 of the state's 95 counties have passed some sort of, well, no, I take that back. It's something like 91 of the state's 95 counties have passed some form or fashion of a Second Amendment sanctuary resolution. You've got a couple of uh, uh, towns that have passed uh, ordinances. It's possible that if uh, Northam tries to bring his gun ban bill back next year, which he says he's going to do, then we'll see another round of Second Amendment sanctuaries uh, pop up here in the state of Virginia. But I, I think what we're more likely to see in a state like Virginia, which has sort of reached maturity in terms of the number of sanctuaries that are already in place, uh, I, I think, frankly, we're going to see what I hope to see uh, are those bodies, those county supervisors, those city councils, uh, send a message to the state legislature on behalf of their citizens that, look, we don't plan on enforcing this. Just a reminder here that this is not going to be a priority for our local law enforcement if you pass this ban. So you better get the uh, Virginia State Police uh, you know, involved here if you are hoping to try to put your gun ban into practice. And I still have, honestly, I, I still have doubts that Governor Northam is really going to push hard for his gun ban this next session. He says that he, he says he is. It's been a couple of months, actually, since he said that he would in the next session. But um, again, I think that was predicated on the idea that that Democrats were going to have a really good night on election night and that a blue wave was going to sweep over the country and sweep over the state of Virginia. And we didn't see that at all. So 2021, that's when the state of Virginia has their next legislative elections. Every member of the General Assembly is going to be up for reelection. Uh, state Senate won't be up until 2023. But Republicans and pro-Second Amendment lawmakers have an opportunity in Virginia to take back one of the two chambers of the legislature. And I'm just not convinced, despite Northam's protest to the contrary, I'm not convinced that Governor Northam is really going to work hard to uh, pass his draconian and sweeping and unconstitutional uh, gun ban during an election year. Uh, in a state that is very much still a purple state. I, I, I hope that I'm right. If I'm wrong and he does decide to keep moving, again, not only will we see maybe a few more Second Amendment sanctuaries pop up in Virginia, but I think we're going to see a, um, a red tide in the state in the 2021 elections. So my two cents, if you live in a community that, uh, you know, does not have a Second Amendment sanctuary ordinance or a resolution in place, you would like to see one in place. I would actually advise going with a resolution at this point. Not only are those resolutions, I think, uh, less likely to be challenged in court, but I think that they actually stand a, a better chance of doing what they're intended, uh, stopping the enforcement 
of unconstitutional gun control laws there at the local level. So we'll keep our eyes on what's going on there uh, with any potential legal challenges in Umatilla in Columbia County's Oregon. And uh, we'll let you know of any more Second Amendment sanctuaries that pop up in the meantime. Right now, though, let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, our recidivist report. We'll start there with a, a case out of Iowa. Quad City Times reporting a Davenport teenager already on probation, now charged with the October 25th murder of 19-year-old Levanta Baker, uh, who was found in a vehicle uh, back on uh, October 24th with multiple gunshot wounds. The following day, Cheryl Jermaine Tolbert taken into custody on a uh, probation violation charge uh, regarding a, a stolen car. And then uh, as Tolbert was behind bars on that uh, probation violation, he was ultimately served with the uh, warrant for first-degree murder. But there are some big questions about why Tolbert, who's just 19 years of age and already a convicted felon, why he was out on the streets to begin with. According to the Quad City Times, Tolbert's convictions stem from a couple of incidents last year. One, April 17th, 2019, Tolbert was found within a block of a stolen car. Uh, he struck two officers and they took him into custody. He pleaded guilty to second-degree theft, which is a Class D felony that carries a five-year prison sentence. Two counts of assaulting police officers. Those are both aggravated misdemeanors that carry a two-year prison sentence. Then later that year, July 8th, 2019, Tolbert burglarized a garage to steal a car. He pleaded guilty to second-degree burglar in that case. That's a Class C felony that carries a 10-year prison sentence. And um, in this proposed plea bargain from Tolbert, he would not have had to do any time behind bars. February 21st of this year, Scott County District Judge Mark Cleave rejected a proposed plea because the agreement was going to place Tolbert on probation rather than sending him to prison. And he wrote in his decision, the court knows that the defendant has had 11 prior juvenile court adjudications, at least six of which would have been felonies if he had been an adult, four of which involved assaults or assault of conduct. And the court further notes that the charges he was to be sentenced on included two aggravated misdemeanor assault charges, which were committed less than two weeks after he had been placed on juvenile probation for several offenses, which included two counts of assault with intent to inflict serious injury. The judge also noted that he was, uh, while uh, Tolbert was awaiting the disposition of these two cases, he also committed another aggravated misdemeanor assault against a female jailer at the Cedar County Jail. So a judge in February of this year said, look, I don't think this guy should be placed on probation. I think he should go to prison. But on March 27th of this year, just about five weeks after the judge made those comments, Tolbert was sentenced to three years probation by Scott County District Judge Patrick McKillia. Why? Why? Again, this 19-year-old has been in constant trouble with the law, including felony-level offenses, to the point that by the time he was 18 years of age, he had already racked up nearly a dozen juvenile offenses, including some for violent crimes. And that conduct continued when he reached the age of adulthood, and still, a judge gave Mr. Tolbert a slap on the wrist. So rather than going to prison, as one judge said he should, Tolbert was put back out on the streets. And here we are, less than a year later, and now the 19-year-old's facing first-degree murder charges. Now, I don't know if the Quad City Times is going to be asking Judge McElia why he decided to sentence Tolbert to probation instead of uh, prison, as the uh, original judge in this case recommended. But I really hope that there are some follow-ups. 
And I really hope the people of uh, Davenport, Iowa, and the Quad Cities area ask some serious questions about the juvenile justice system and the criminal justice system overall, because this is an injustice. Now, on to our Armed citizen story of the day, which uh, comes to us from Las Vegas, Nevada, where a uh, man was shot and killed after firing a round into a home uh, in the uh, uh, early morning hours of uh, Monday. This was about 4.15 Monday morning. Officers got a call in the 3600 block of Villa Knowles East on a uh, shooting report. Officers arrived. They found a man dead there on the scene. Authorities talked to a woman who lives in the apartment complex. She said that she ended up getting a, a ride home from a friend and uh, asked to be walked home because she was afraid of a coworker that had been coming around the complex. So she and her friend walked to the front door. They noticed a guy described as a 19-year-old male following quickly after them. They were able to get inside the home, but then the uh, 19-year-old ran up and fired at least one round through the front door of the apartment and into the home. That's when the friend of the woman fired back through the door hitting and killing the man. Investigators say that they're still reviewing surveillance video. They confirmed that the man killed was the woman's co-worker. Uh, their prior working relationship still unclear. But, uh, you know, you hear this story. First of all, kudos to this woman for having the presence of mind to know. All right, I, I don't feel safe right now. And uh, kudos to her friend for giving a ride home and being there. Uh, in a situation to defend her and himself uh, from this armed assailant. So we'll keep our eyes on this story. I imagine, I, I, don't, I don't know, but something tells me that um, this victim or intended victim probably going to be going to a gun range herself here before long and uh, learning how to protect herself with a firearm because you know what? Good friends, they're great to have, but uh, they might not always be there when you need them. I'm glad in this case, there was somebody there that she could rely on. Finally today, our good deed of the day from Ohio, the uh, village of Dundee, where a police officer stepped in to save a teenager's life who was uh, contemplating suicide on a uh, overpass. 23-year-old officer uh, Hunter Chirillo, uh, Saturday, November the 7th. Had just cleared a traffic stop. He was uh, turning his vehicle around, and then he noticed a car that was parked in the middle of the roadway on top of an overpass. And he noticed a young man standing on top of that car. He uh, stopped to see if the individual needed any help, and the uh, 17-year-old from Adrian, Ohio, told the officer that he was there because he wanted to jump off the overpass. Cirillo uh, exited his car, got out, notified uh, dispatch, Medical responders were sent to assist along with additional units, but Cirillo started a conversation with the young man, built a rapport. He uh, kept the teen's thoughts, focused on the conversation, away from the uh, edge of that overpass. Sheriff's Deputy and uh, Dundee Officer Paul Klink and Reserve Officer Derek Cole were there within minutes, and the uh, officers were able to secure the uh, young man, take him to a local hospital for further evaluation and assistance. Officer Cirillo says that he is happy to have been in the right place at the right time. He said, if I had never gone to that exit to turn around, or if I had never made that traffic stop in the first place, I think it was completely lucky that I found him, and I'm really glad that I did. He said, I was able to help the kid. And I think the biggest message is that there's always help to get if you're suicidal or if you have thoughts of harming yourself. 
There's going to be help in hospitals, therapists, whatever it is that you need. There's always someone you can reach out for to help, whether it's family or doctors. And that is a critically important message these days. You know, the coronavirus, the economic damage that it has wreaked on this country, the um, social isolation that many of us are feeling. Suicide rates are unfortunately going up in 2020, right along with uh, violent crime. And the Suicide Prevention Hotline, 800-273-8255. If you are feeling overwhelmed, if you are feeling like you can't go on, there is help. And there are people who care. And life will get better. I have been in those dark places before, too. And I can tell you that there is another day ahead. And please, please, if you need that help, don't be alone. You can reach out. Again, the uh, National Suicide Prevention Highlight, 1-800-273-8255. And that's going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we're going to talk with our friend Tony Simon from Diversity Shoot. About the growing number of minority gun owners, are they... Um, Exercising their Second Amendment rights because they're afraid of racial unrest, personal safety, maybe a combination of the two. We'll delve into that topic on the next edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. Don't forget, though, you can subscribe to Town Hall Media on YouTube. That way you'll never miss a program, including tomorrow's episode. Also, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you find your normal podcast, that's where you'll find this one, too, because we're a normal podcast, by golly. Uh, in the meantime, be well, be safe. Be free, and we'll see you soon with another edition of Bearing Arms Cannon Company.